Well, when I first started studying First Peter to teach through it here on Sunday mornings, that song came to my mind, and I thought it would serve as an appropriate theme song for uh, really the theme of this letter that Peter wrote to these persecuted believers who were scattered all over uh, Asia at the time. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with that song, but it was a collaborative effort by Getty Music that was inspired by and based on the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, because we're not a, an, a Reformed church in the sense of denominationally, we call ourselves a Reformed church when it comes to our understanding of the doctrines of grace and you know, soteriology, how we understand salvation as it's taught in the scriptures, but we're not a denominational Reformed church, and so we may not be as familiar with the, the catechisms and the confessions that uh, some of those Reformed churches are. Um, but during the days of the Protestant Reformation in the 15 and 1600s, catechisms were written to summarize the basic truths of Scripture through a series of questions and answers. And these catechisms, or confessions as some of them were called, uh, served to unify churches, to guide preachers, and to instruct children and young people in the Christian faith. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 is the most widely used and most highly praised catechism of the Reformation period. And this popular, powerful little catechism begins with a simple question. And it's this, what is your only comfort in life and death? If I were to pose that question to you and bring a microphone out and say, answer that question for all of us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? How would you answer? What would you say? Well, here's what the Heidelberg Catechism said, and again, this was designed to teach biblical doctrine, and particularly to catechize children in the right uh, biblical answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? This is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I'm not sure you would have thought of that as your answer, but that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a chunky response to a simple question just filled with biblical truth. The bottom line is that we as Christians find comfort, we find hope while enduring the trials of life and when facing death, which we all will someday unless the Lord returns, We find comfort and hope in knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ and that we have a glorious future in store for us in heaven because of Christ's death and resurrection. And so consequently, we can sing, what were we told to sing there, exhorted to sing? 
hallelujah, which is a Hebrew term meaning praise Yahweh or praise the Lord that's uttered in worship or as an expression of rejoicing. And I think that is the point that Peter was making here in verses 3 through 12, which is, again, one long sentence in the original Greek. Uh, Two times he included the phrase, greatly rejoice. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Look at verse 8. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so singing that song is an appropriate application of this opening section of 1 Peter. Why? Because it causes us or gives us an opportunity to praise him and rejoice in our great salvation in Christ. Let's reread the text together this morning, starting in verse 3, starting in verse 3, and we'll be reading through verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to, ma- come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. We said last week that these verses break up nicely into three sections, verses 3 through 5, verses 6 through 9, and verses 10 through 12. Last week we looked at verses 3 through 5, today we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. And here in these verses, Peter addressed the topic of trials, And I really wrestled with how to best present this or package this and present this to you this morning. I thought of uh, perhaps talking about the reasons why uh, we can rejoice in trials, and there's uh, certainly that in this text. But really, I think as he was talking about trials, it was in some sense a little bit of a rabbit trail uh, that he got himself into applying these principles of salvation to trials. And so really what he's doing here is he's continuing to talk about the blessings that we enjoy or will enjoy 
that should give us hope while enduring life and when experiencing death. And so it's really the same flow of thought. We said this is one grammatical unit here, and so it's really all the same flow of thought. And so what we're going to see this morning are, are four more blessings that we have as Christians based on our salvation in Christ. Last week we talked about the blessing of an irresistible rebirth, an indestructible inheritance, and an invincible guardian. And there's four more blessings here in these next uh, uh, four verses. Um, We have incombustible faith, invisible love, inexpressible joy, and indelible hope. And so let's look at these blessings further uh, and in more detail um, this morning. First of all, um, we have incombustible faith. I think you're familiar with the term incombustible. It's any material that does not catch on fire uh, when exposed to flames, right? It's incombustible. You can't burn it up. And so he says this, in this you greatly rejoice. Notice the connection here between a believer's future eternal blessings. He's just got done talking about this inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, and that we are being protected ourselves by the power of God. Uh, And in this we greatly rejoice. In other words, when you consider your future eternal blessings, um, they collide with your present temporal burdens and struggles and trials. In other words, in light of what we have to look forward to in heaven, we can greatly rejoice in the midst of our suffering here on earth. Based on our heavenly inheritance, nothing that we face here in this earthly life should diminish or rob us of our joy. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, that we experience joy in pain. We are We often find ourselves in situations where we are sorrowful yet rejoicing. Like when you are sitting at your father's memorial service, you're sorrowful yet rejoicing knowing that he is in a better place, knowing that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ and he is finally free not just of his earthly pain and suffering from a tumor, but he's free from sin. The paradox of grieving with hope. As Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, but, but I, I don't want you to, to grieve as those who have no hope. He didn't say don't grieve. He just said don't grieve like everybody else in the world who when they grieve, they have no hope. And so as you grieve with hope, as you watch the backhoe cover your husband's casket with dirt. You grieve, but you grieve with hope. This is the Christian life. This is the, the life of, a, of an elect exile in a world that's not our home, that we're going to a better place. And some guys, sometimes our loved ones beat us there. They go on before us. And so we rejoice with them, but it doesn't change the pain and the grief for those of us who are left behind. Notice he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. 
Peter wants us to realize that, that just because God has sovereignly set his affection on us and, and, and chosen us for salvation, and just because he mercifully caused us to be born again, and even though he graciously is reserving for us an eternal inheritance, and even though he's powerfully protecting us even now, doesn't mean we're immune to suffering. Peter was writing to believers who were suffering harsh and unjust treatment for their commitment to Christ. You just have to read through this letter to see that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So these people were being slandered as evildoers. In chapter 2, verse 18, Peter says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So they were experiencing unreasonable and unjust treatment. And then chapter 3, verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So they were being slandered. They were being reviled for their faith in Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So Peter was encouraging them not to let their difficult circumstances rob them of their joy, but to remember whatever they had to temporarily endure here in this world was nothing compared to what they would eternally enjoy in the world to come. Paul said quite a bit about this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he talked about how we have been made heirs of Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I mean, if you just recall just a few of the things that the Apostle Paul endured, the afflictions, the difficulties, the trials, beaten untold times, left for dead. But in his mind, it, it was momentary, it was light. This is the impossible, that's, that's nothing. It's just light, it's momentary. In light of what we have in store for us. Someone said it this way, don't allow the trauma of the present to blur your vision of your glorious future with Christ in heaven. Doesn't that happen to us when we, we find ourselves in a, in a difficult situation, a traumatic situation, and, and all of a sudden our vision just blurs, <laughs> and we lose focus, and we lose sight, 
of our glorious future with Christ in heaven, all that seems to go out the window, and he's saying, hey, don't allow that to happen. Like I said previously, it's like he's, Peter's like taking our, our, our face and, and getting them off ourselves and off of our trials, and he's pushing us to look towards heaven. Like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So whatever you're enduring, right, whatever God's called you to endure, you can do that by looking to the joy that is before you. There's a few things we can learn about trials here from this verse. Notice he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. It's one of the most helpful verses in all the New Testament about trials, developing a a theology of trials, if you will. Number one, we can determine here from this that that trials are temporary. They're temporary. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 10, he actually says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so trials are temporary. You say, well, what are you talking about? I've been dealing with this chronic pain for 25 years. Or my kid left the church when he was 18, and I'm in my 80s, and he still hasn't come back. What are you talking about temporary? Well, temporary in the sense that it's not forever. That it may be during your lifetime, but it's not forever. They're temporary. They're momentary in comparison to eternity. Secondly, not only are they temporary, they are necessary. They are necessary. He says, if necessary. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for those for you to follow in his steps. Chapter 3, verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good, you're doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong, what, what, doing what is wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is necessary. And then look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I think that's an interesting theme here in, in 1 Peter. A sub-theme is that suffering is all part of God's will for our lives. Experiencing trials, that's all part of God's will, God's plan for our lives. You suffer according to the will of God. And we know this throughout the New Testament. Jesus um, warned us, if you will, in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 Paul said this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
he said this to the uh, church in Philippi. Couldn't be any clearer than this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, don't be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And then 2 Timothy 3, 12, you're probably familiar with this passage, everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. And so trials are temporary, they're necessary, but also notice they come in a variety of forms. He says, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Of course, this should remind us of what uh, James said just a few pages back. If you just turn to the left a couple pages, James is right before 1 Peter. James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter, here's the same word, various trials, multicolored, polka-dotted trials, a kaleidoscope of trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Which brings us to the fourth statement we can make about trials. They serve many purposes. They're they're temporary, they're necessary. They, They come in a variety of forms and they serve many purposes. A few of those purposes are listed by James there. The testing of your faith, it produces endurance so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's very similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We rejoice in our trials, knowing. Why do we rejoice? Who, Who would rejoice in their trials? Because you know that tribulation or trials bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. In other words, we could never develop any of these characteristics in our life were it not for trials. That that is the means that God has ordained for us to develop Christian character, Christ-like character. These godly qualities is through trials. I taught a class uh, years ago, and I came up with this list of biblical purposes or reasons for trials and suffering. You say, well, what? I, I don't understand. I, I, why, God, why? Why this? Why now? Why me? And so we naturally ask ourselves, those questions, what, what, what's up with this? I don't get this. I see no reason for this. And, and so sometimes we struggle to figure out the reason or the purpose for a particular trial or uh, some suffering that God has called us to. Well, let me just give you a grocery list of of, of reasons or purposes for trials and suffering. And, and maybe there's some trial you've been going through and you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand why. Maybe one of these will, will fit your situation. Don't try to write them down. Just listen to glorify God. That's a, that's a purpose for trials and suffering so that God is glorified, to accomplish good in our lives, to make us more like Christ, to develop endurance and perseverance, to bring us to spiritual maturity. To show that God is always worthy to be worshipped no matter what. To teach us to obey God's word. 
to discipline us when we disobey God's word, to produce more spiritual fruit in our lives, to build up the body of Christ by stimulating us to love and to serve one another, to prepare us to better minister to others, to expose what is really in our hearts so that we can deal with it, to help us learn to trust God more, to provide us with opportunities to witness, to allow us to reap what we have sown, to cause us to be humble and dependent on God, to remind us that this is not our home and to make us long for heaven. And the purpose that's given here in 1 Peter to purify and prove the genuineness of our faith. Notice what he says, and this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So one of the purposes of trials is to test the genuineness of our faith in Christ. And two times in verse 7, Peter used the Greek word dokimazo, which is the word used for testing and refining metals. And just like gold refineries, steel refineries in our day, um, back then metals would be subjected to intense heat to expose any weakness and make sure they didn't crack. And so in a similar way, God subjects us as his people to all sorts of fiery trials for the purpose of seeing if our faith is real, that it won't crack. There's a lot of people who profess faith in Christ, but as soon as their faith is tested by trials, they fall away from Christ. Those who have genuine faith will not fall away regardless of the trials and and suffering that God ordains for their lives. A good illustration of that is Jesus' parable of the soils. Back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told this parable about four different types of soil, which represents four different types of hearts or four different responses to the gospel. And the second type of soil is the rocky soil, which is described in these words. Jesus said, others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Well, you can kind of figure out what that refers to, but Jesus didn't want to leave that to our own um, interpretation, and so he explained that in verse 20. He said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man or person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So I believe the rocky soil represents those individuals who make a superficial profession of faith in Christ but it's not real, it's not authentic, it's counterfeit. Because as soon as it's tested, they walk away from Christ. They reject Christ, they punt Christ, they punt their faith. Warren Wearsby said it well. He said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. 
Job would be a great example of this, right, in the Old Testament. And some think, well, Satan was the one that tempted or tested Job's faith. Well, actually, it was God who wanted to demonstrate the authenticity of Job's faith. Because when Satan came to converse with God, he said, have you noticed my servant Job? There's not a man like him on the planet. No one worships me as sincerely, as, as, as fully as Job. And Satan said, well, of course he does. Because you've given a cushy life. You've given everything he ever needs. Why wouldn't he worship you? Why wouldn't he follow you? Why wouldn't he be faithful to you? He said, really? Okay, well, why don't you take it all away and let's see what he does. Just don't take his life. And so he gave Satan the freedom to take away everything that God had blessed Job with. And we know the, the outcome, right? Job passed the test. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. What? Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he continued to worship the Lord. Even when his wife told him to curse God and die. He said, no, hon, I'm worshiping the Lord. And he said this, Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I will come forth as, remember, gold. So this is an Old Testament principle, not just a New Testament principle. And so Peter says this, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So he's talking about how believers may at times undergo severe testing, but instead of destroying their faith, God uses it to deepen and strengthen and purify their faith. Again, in the last chapter, he, he brings all of this to a conclusion in chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered, well, uh, verse 9, let's say in the context, resist him, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, there's a lot of other Christians who are going through similar stuff and some of them worse stuff than you are. And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what God's all about in your trial. He wants to accomplish those things. He's, he's, he's establishing you. He's strengthening you. He's confirming you. He's perfecting you. The hymn how firm a foundation has a has a um, stanza that goes like this when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply the flame shall not hurt thee I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine it's a great song and those of you that are maybe into the whole metallurgy stuff, right? Do you understand this concept that gold is often heated to remove its impurities? And in like fashion, God often uses trials and tribulations to remove the impurities of this world from our lives so that we're more fit for heaven. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite um, 
Bible teachers suggested that the variety of trials are like different temperature settings on God's furnace. And so these settings are, are adjusted by God himself in order to burn sin from our lives. He knows exactly who we are and what we need, right? So he's constantly working on us and, and, and heating up the furnace just to the right level to deal with sin in our lives, to purify us, to grow us, to mature us, and ultimately to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And I read somewhere that the, the Near Eastern goldsmiths that Peter may have been thinking of as he was writing this, they would keep gold in the furnace until they could see their face reflected in it. That, that's how they know it had been purified, that it was ready. And in the same way, our Lord keeps us in the furnace until he sees the image of his son reflected in our lives. Why? Because the more we're like Jesus, the more praise and honor and glory we bring to him now and when he comes back to get us. Notice he says that it may be found to result in praise and honor, uh, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That may be a reference to the praise and the honor and glory that Christ will receive when he returns, which is obviously true. But I think it's also a reference that we will receive praise, and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we'll be rewarded by Christ himself when he returns. He will reward every true believer, especially those whose faith was tested by unimaginable and inexplicable trials. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You remember the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That sounds like what was happening to the people Peter was writing to. He said, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then of course the parable of the, of the, the talents, right? We will, those of us who are faithful, with what the Lord has entrusted to us, uh, when we get to heaven, we'll hear what? Well done, good and faithful servant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul talks about receiving a reward in heaven. He says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. You ever thought about what the Lord is going to praise you for? You know you're going to spend eternity praising him, right? But what is he going to praise you for? James 1.12, James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We talk about receiving crowns in heaven. We get that from Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. 
It says the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. I love the name of the band, Casting Crowns. That's where they got it from. That, yeah, you may receive some crowns. You may receive some praise. You may receive some rewards. But our natural response in the presence of Almighty God will simply be to what? Turn around and give it all back to him. And give him all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. But in the meantime, this is encouraging, this is comforting because we are being scoffed at and slandered because of our faith, knowing that when the Lord returns, we will be praised and honored. It's going to be a complete role reversal. And the one who matters most, right, is what we should care about most. Wayne Grudem, in his comments on this section, said this, quote, God will commend those who trusted him in hardship, even though they could not see the reason for it. They trusted him simply because he, because he was their God and they knew him to be worthy of trust. That's beautiful. It is in times when the reason for hardship cannot be seen that trust in God alone seems to become most pure and precious in his sight. Such faith he will not forget. And so the first blessing that we see this morning, which is really the fourth blessing in this text, is incombustible faith. Incombustible faith. But there's another blessing, and that is invisible love. Invisible love. Look at verse 8. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. Unlike Peter, the people that he was writing to had no personal contact with Jesus while he lived and ministered here on this earth. Peter walked and, and, and talked and interacted with Jesus, but his readers were a generation removed from Christ, and he was commending them that while they had not seen Christ, like he had the privilege of seeing him, they loved him anyway. And I have to think that he was perhaps recalling that seaside chat that he had with Jesus in John 21. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of, son of John, do you, what, love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I mean, that kind of conversation with Jesus would have gone a long way in helping me love him. But I've never had that kind of conversation with Jesus. I've never even seen Jesus. And neither of you. And yet, we love him. And according to Peter, they loved him dearly. And not only loved him, but trusted him completely. And even though you do not see him now, 
You believe in him. In other words, you, you, you never saw him, and yet you love him. And even though you can't see him now, you, you still believe in him. And I think Peter is just acknowledging here that it's not easy to place our, our, our faith in someone and depend on someone that we've never met, let alone have never even seen. In fact, that's kind of crazy, to be honest with you. If you actually start thinking about it, we're crazy. We're crazy to believe someone or in something that we've never seen, we've never met, right? And yet God has granted us that faith and that love. You remember the story of doubting Thomas, right? And he was there in the upper room, and uh, I guess he came late. He missed Jesus' appearance in the upper room to the disciples. And uh, he came, and they said, hey, we just saw Jesus. He's, yeah, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. And when I actually, right, see the scars in his hand, and I actually put my hand in his scar on his side, he, I mean, he was... Uh, an evidentialist. He needed to tangibly see it and touch it and feel it. And well, when Jesus showed back up and gave him the opportunity to touch him, right, and feel him, um, he just said, my Lord and my God, right? He was stunned. But then this is what Jesus said. Because you have seen me, have you believed Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I think you could also imply here, blessed are those who will not see me and yet will believe in me. That's us. And so even though we can't see Jesus, we know he's right beside us in the midst of every trial that we go through. It's like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in Daniel chapter 3, when they refused to bow to the, the, uh, the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they weren't about to worship anyone but Christ or anyone but God, and so Nebuchadnezzar said, fine, I'm going to kill you, and uh, he, wanted, he was going to throw him in the, the furnace, and so he wanted to make a point, and so he heated it up like way hotter than normal, right, and he threw those guys in there in the furnace, and he was looking and watching what happened. I guess he was a sadistic kind of guy, wanted to see what that looks like for people to get burned up alive. And he said, hey, didn't you guys throw three guys in there? Well, who's that fourth guy? And his face is real shiny, as the, the guy on VeggieTales said. His face is real shiny. Well, the point is, it was Jesus. A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ was in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And while we may not visibly see Jesus in our furnace, when we're in the furnace, when God's got us on the conveyor belt and he's running us through the furnace again, <laughs> and we may not see his presence, we not, may not feel his presence, but he's right there with us. We have this invisible love and faith in Christ Recently, Tim Challies posted a quote on his Instagram account by a gal named Betsy Childs Howard, and it went like this, quote, we would never choose suffering for ourselves, but when God allows suffering into our lives, 
He gives us opportunities to experience Jesus that we would not otherwise have. In other words, none of us would sign up for suffering. Oh, that sounds fun. Cancer? Oh, yeah, sign me up for that. Oh, that that looks fun, you know, losing one of my kids, you know, or having a a kid wander away from Christ or, you you know, to to go bankrupt. What do you, you fill in the blank? Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. Sign me up for that. No, none of us would sign up for that stuff. But it's through those experiences that we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes our relationship with Christ, our experience with Christ to a whole another level, does it not? And this love and this faith in him becomes even stronger. So we have incombustible faith, we have invisible love, we have also inexpressible joy, inexpressible joy. Notice verse eight, he says, and though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. When you understand this spiritual reality, it, it, it just gushes forth from your soul this, this spiritual joy that's so personal, it's so profound, it, it defies expression. There's no words that you can think of to describe it. It's inexpressible. And it seems that Peter may have been implying here that our present relationship with the unseen Christ should, cause, should be cause for even greater joy than our future hope when we actually see him just as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, right? We will, when we see him, we'll become like him. William McDonald, one of my favorite commentators. He's got a great little um, Believer's Bible commentary. If you're looking for just a one-volume commentary to have in your library, just a one-stop shop, I recommend um, William McDonald's, the Believer's Bible commentary. He said this, the Christian's joy is not dependent on earthly circumstances, but on the risen, exalted Christ at God's right hand. He said, it is no more possible to rob a saint of his joy than it is to unseat Christ from his place of glory. The two stand together, he says. I mean, it, 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 you know, it, 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 it's impossible. It would be impossible to rip God, Christ off of his throne. And so therefore, as long as he's there, right, we should never be robbed. Nothing should ever rob us of our joy. So we have an expressible joy. And then lastly, we have indelible hope. We have indelible hope. The word indelible means Permanent. Permanent. Uh, something that we can look forward to, something that uh, we have confident expectation regarding. Verse 9, what is that? He says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So I think Peter was, was referring to the ultimate outcome of our salvation. When we stand in the presence of Christ, we receive our glorified bodies to go with our saved souls. And again, this is where we have to think broadly about the doctrine of salvation here in that the moment we trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we received the salvation of our souls. 
As I mentioned last week, we, we, we are presently saved from the penalty of sin and, and the power of sin, but we eagerly anticipate the day when we'll be saved from the presence of sin. And all of its consequences, that's why it says that in heaven, in Revelation chapter 21, that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more disease, no more suffering, no more death. These are all the effects of sin. And when there's no sin, there's none of these things either. And so we'll be finally delivered from these fallen, broken, sin-cursed bodies and, and we'll be delivered from this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. But let's not forget, this is not just a future hope, this is a present hope. It's a, it's a hope that's alive and well in our hearts right now because we're already experiencing salvation now, the abundant life that Christ promised, right? In John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life abundantly and an eternal life. The clock has already started ticking, right? You, you have eternal life now. It's already begun through the reality of Christ's presence in our life by the Holy Spirit. So we're living here in this, what is what we refer to as the now and not yet. Welcome to that state. Right, as a Christian, what, the, the, the now and the not yet. Turn to the end of, uh, well, turn to chapter four as we wrap this up this morning. Peter really gets into it in chapter four, this whole subject of suffering. He repeats it, he expands on what he taught in verses six through nine in chapter one, but in chapter four, verse 12, he, he really expands on this whole subject of suffering. Listen to what he says. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, read it with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on what? Rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So you're going to rejoice then. Well, start rejoicing now. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's that obedience, right? We talked about uh, last week or several weeks ago. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what shall become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Can I just speak to those of you who perhaps are not a Christian here today? You have not obeyed the gospel of God? Peter calls you a godless sinner. And Paul says that you are without hope in this world. 
Why? Because none of these blessings that we've been learning about last week and this morning apply to you. You you don't have these blessings. You've never experienced these blessings. But all this could change. Today, if you're willing to love and believe someone you cannot see, that someone is Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to this earth and he lived the perfect life that we all failed to live and he died that awful death that all of us deserve to die. And after being dead for three days, he rose from the grave, he went back to heaven where he's now seated at God's right hand and God now offers forgiveness and eternal life to those who turn from their sin, who place their faith in his son Christ, his death, his resurrection as the only way to get right with God and to live live forever with him in heaven. And so if you are willing to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ today, you will experience what it means to be born again to a living hope. And all this becomes yours. Now, I'm not promising you that all the problems in your life will immediately go away. In fact, things may get worse. But while your life might get harder, it will also get better. Because you'll have the living Lord Jesus Christ by your side to provide you help and hope and peace no matter what you have to experience or face in life. My wife encouraged me to read an article from a recent Voice of the, Marticle, Voice of the Martyrs um, magazine. And uh, how many of you guys get this magazine mailed to you on a regular basis? If you don't, I'd encourage you to get it mailed to you. Um, man, it just kind of keeps things in perspective. Sometimes we think we have it so bad. And then you read a story about a fanatical Christian in Egypt, a fanatic as they're referred to. And this story is uh, it's a, true, a true story about a, a young woman named Sanjana. And uh, this is her story, and it's titled, Unwilling to Escape Suffering. In other words, if you had an opportunity to escape suffering, would you take it? If you, if you had the, the way to get out of it, would you take it? Well, she was unwilling to take the easy way out. After Sanjana came to faith in Jesus Christ through the witness of a Christian neighbor, she found a peace she had not known before. She said, for the first time in my life, I was not worried. I was not afraid. I had peace, she said. That sense of peace later sustained her through four years of torment. Sanjana's family had a reputation as fighters using guns to resolve conflicts. But growing up in an agricultural part of Upper Egypt that was home to both Coptic Christians and Muslims, she was always impressed by how her Christian classmates humbly accepted beatings in class without complaint. At about age 13, Sanjana began to question a Christian teacher about her faith. But knowing the reputation of Sanjana's family and the incendiary history of Muslim-Christian relationships in Egypt, the woman was too afraid to answer her directly. Instead, the teacher directed Sanjana to a Christian neighbor who explained the Christian faith to her over the next two years. 
The Christian also gave Sanjana a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, which she wrapped in a plastic bag and hid in a hole in the ground. You imagine that, having to put your Bible, when you got home today, put your Bible in a, in a, in a, in a Ziploc and go some, hide it somewhere in your backyard so your family couldn't find it? So they wouldn't know you were a Christian? After reading the gospel and learning more about the Christian faith, Sanjana found it to be the complete opposite of what she experienced in her Muslim home. Eventually, and with deep consideration, she decided to become a follower of Christ. Sanjana's father soon noticed that she had stopped praying five times a day as required in Islam. When he asked her about it, she boldly told him about her decision to trust in Christ. Her father's response was predictable. He beat her. What is this nonsense you're talking about, he asked. We raised you as a Muslim. You have to continue as a Muslim. Our sons were born as Muslims. Our grandfathers are Muslims. So you are a Muslim. But Sanjana was unmoved. When she tried to attend church, she was refused entry because she didn't have a cross tattoo to show that she was a Christian. After decades of persecution, most Egyptian Orthodox churches are fearful of false Christian converts from Islam infiltrating their churches and some view the tattoo as a demonstration of a sincere conversion. Imagine that, having to have a tattoo to get in the front doors today. A cross tattooed on your body somewhere to prove that you're legit, that you're the real deal. When her family saw that Sanjana was serious about her new faith, they challenged her. I believe in Jesus, Sanjana told them. Her father beat her again, and this time he tied her up and locked her in a room on the family compound. Sanjana spent the next three years in that room, half-starved and beaten continually. My father would start to beat me, she said, and when he got tired, my other family members would take over. It was like a party. The beatings resulted in a broken arm and fractures in her neck and shoulders, and family members used acid to try to remove that small cross tattoo that she had recently gotten on her forearm. Finally, they decided to try, to try the ultimate humiliation. Sanjana's father and brother brought an imam to her room with the understanding that he had permission to rape her if she would not return to Islam. Sanjana's pastor explained that the imam would have married her later to break her dignity. They wanted to destroy her, he said. Sanjana screamed for help as the imam sexually assaulted her, but no one came to her aid. The injustice and horror of Sanjana's treatment, however, persuaded her younger sister to leave Islam and follow Christ. She helped Sanjana escape that night, and the two women fled to Cairo, where they slept on the street. Sanjana's freedom did not last long. A family member soon found her and dragged her back to their home in Upper Egypt. They beat her almost to death, her pastor said. I don't know how she survived this beating. Then her family forced her to marry a Muslim man who locked her in their apartment and went about the task of reconverting her to Islam. I struggled so much with my husband, Sanjana said. I was tortured and persecuted during that year. In the end, when he found nothing was working with me, he was afraid that the neighbors would find out about me becoming a Christian. That would shame him, so he divorced me. After a year of marriage and subsequent divorce, Sanjana was on the street again. This time she connected with a VOM-supported pastor in Cairo who ministers specifically to Christian converts from Islam. He arranged for Sanjana to live with a Christian family and introduced, introduced her sister to a Christian convert whom she later married. Sanjana was baptized in 2016. She said that as the pastor lowered her into the water, she felt like Jesus was speaking to her, confirming that she was his daughter. I wanted to hear Jesus more, she said, laughing at how she almost struggled with the pastor to keep her underwater longer so she could hear more of the precious voice. As for why she never rejected her faith in Christ during the years of severe abuse, she gave a sound biblical example. 
She said this, and I quote, suppose I was living in the pigsty like the prodigal son, then you cleaned me and washed me, eating clean food and wearing clean clothes, how can I go back to just, just to, to escape suffering? I'm an ambassador to my God now. How can I become a slave once again? Powerful testimony of someone who hasn't just heard a sermon on 1 Peter chapter 1, but she's actually living it out. And I trust that if we are ever called by God to be in a similar situation, that we would be able to uh, rise to the occasion by the grace of God and put into practice what he's taught us here today. Father, we're thankful for your word and how it's so relevant, it's so practical. And Lord, I know there's a number of families in our church right now, individuals, families who are going through very difficult trials. And it just seems to be a a season of suffering in the life of many in our church and even in our community. And so I pray that you would grant them an extra measure of your grace, that this um, passage this morning would comfort them and encourage them and soothe them, Father, would give them hope, would give them perseverance and endurance in the midst of their trial. And Lord, that we would be mindful of those around us, um, that we would be um, prayerful, that we would pray for them, we would care for them, we would seek to serve them in any way we can, um, because it's only a matter of time before our day comes. And uh, you're going to load us up into the furnace to continue your sanctifying work in our lives. And so I pray that we would serve one another well and, and do unto others as we would want them to do unto us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.